are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. All right, open your Bible tonight, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9 and chapter 10. I want to share with you several verses and speak to you out of my heart and maybe set the uh, tone for this week's meetings here. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 35, reading to the end of the chapter, picking up verse 16 in chapter 10, verse 29 in chapter 10, and verse 5 in chapter 10. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and following. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And now chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Verse 34 and 35. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And now let us bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I'm not here to demonstrate any abilities. I'm aware that I do not have abilities to demonstrate. But I do have a burden, and I hope that somehow I can share it tonight. A journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. This pastor school is a new venture for us. I'm excited about this week. I don't want a single pastor or worker to come to this meeting and leave without getting more than he expected. I want you to exceed our expectations this week, not only in instructions, but also in inspiration. We pastors need retreats, when we can be alone with other pastors and share our burdens. And we need to be preached to. I love those times whenever some man of God opens the word of God. And led by the Spirit of God, he preaches with power and shows me my failure and puts in my heart a determination to serve you and live for you. Dear Lord, I ask for what I do not deserve. 
I ask for the power of the Holy Spirit as I preach here tonight. Thank you, dear Lord, for the wonderful opportunity to fellowship with these men. Thou dost know that in my heart I have a love for pastors. I have a burden for America that came on me two years ago walking the streets of Wilmington, North Carolina. And listening to Dr. Jack Howells as he talked to me hour after hour. And thou dost know that in my own heart I feel the hope of America is to build not only churches, but Bible-believing, soul-winning, fundamental churches, led by pastors whose hearts burn, burn, burn. Set our souls afire tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you notice tonight in the reading of the passage that, that there are five parabolic illustrations that our Lord uses. The latter part of chapter 9, you have the parabolic illustration of a ripened field of grain ready to be harvested. And verse 16 of chapter 10, you have the parabolic illustration of a sheep and wolf, and also the parabolic illustration of serpents and doves. The fourth illustration is found in verse 29 of chapter 10. It's the illustration of the sparrow falling to the ground. The fifth and final illustration is in verse 34 and 35, where Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now keep in mind that these five parabolic illustrations are used in the context where our Lord is sending forth his servants. And I'd like to speak simply on that subject, the sending forth of servants. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, when he called unto him his twelve, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And he named them. And then the Bible says he sent them out. Just before he called them and sent them out, he gave them the illustration of a ripened field of grain ready to be harvested. With that illustration, our Lord illustrates to us his outlook on his own work. The Lord sees the world as a ripened field of grain ready to be harvested. I hope God let that sink into your heart a moment. I want you to visualize, if you can, in just the next two minutes, a field of grain ripe, ready to be harvested. Nothing else has to be done, no more plowing. No more sowing, just the grain is ripe, it's heavy, it's leaning over, ready for somebody to go and harvest it to get it out of the field. That's the way the Lord sees an unsaved world. That suggests to me several ideas. First of all, it suggests to me the idea of multitudes. When you think of a ripened field of grain, you don't think of two or three or four or five or six or seven. When you think of a ripened field of grain, you think of thousands upon thousands upon multiplied thousands. Who could count the numbers of grain of wheat and a field full of ripened grain? 
Who could even begin to estimate that number? No one. And when Jesus looks at the unsaved world, he, he sees it as a ripened field of grain and he thinks about multitudes. You know, if I this week, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, could help you to even see your own field as a ripened harvest or a ripened field of grain ready to be harvested and help you to see beyond one or two people being saved a year or beyond one or two people saved a week or month and not be satisfied with anything less than than scores, and then eventually have goals of hundreds, and then goals of thousands, then I think this whole week would have been profitably spent. Did you know there are nine times as many unsaved people in the world tonight while I'm preaching as there was when Jesus Christ gave the Great Commission? And did you know if we lined all the unsaved people up in a single file, they would circle the globe 30 times and the line grows 20 miles every day you live. And think of this, preachers. If you could freeze a population of the world like it is tonight so there'd be nobody else born and nobody else die, it would take 320 years to win the United States of America to Christ at the rate we won them last year. But you can't freeze it. If you could freeze a population of the world like it is now so that no one else is born and no one else died, it would take for a thousand years, four thousand years, to win the world to Christ at the rate we won them last year. Now think of this one. In the next 24 hours, 345,000 babies will be born who will live, grow up, and die, and never hear a clear presentation of the gospel. And you know what concerns me about that? Is I can rattle off these statistics and nobody cries when I rattle them off. If I said to you, I know an old hound dog that's going to die and go to hell, and you ought to cry about it. If only one little boy died without Christ and went to hell and stayed there and burned forever and ever and ever, somebody ought to weep about that. Here, our Lord suggests the idea of multitudes. Eight years ago on a Sunday night, we didn't baptize anybody. We'd been baptizing folks just about every week. Hadn't missed too many weeks. And after the church had been dismissed and went home eight years ago in that auditorium on the other side, I walked into a dry baptistry. And I stood in that baptistry for the longest time, and I vowed to God that there'd never be a week go by that we didn't baptize somebody in that baptistry. I said, by God's help and God's grace, if nobody else does anything, I as a pastor will lead somebody to Christ. Every week we'll have somebody in that baptistry. Every week I'll live. It's been eight years ago. We've had converts to baptize every Sunday since I walked out of that baptistry on Sunday night. In the last two years, we've averaged 85 conversions or additions of this church every single week. I'm just saying, we're going to have to get beyond the idea of thinking about one or two or three or four. 
We're going to have to think in terms of thousands. I am not satisfied with the number of people who went into Christ at this church. You know why? Because there are more babies being born in the hospitals in Atlanta than are being born in our church here when we give the invitations on Sunday. And we're getting further and further behind every single week we live. I want you to leave here this week. I want you to leave thinking about taking your whole town. I want you to leave thinking big. I want you to leave thinking about, bless God, I want everything in, in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Or I want everything in, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Or I want everything in Wetumpka, Alabama. Bless God, I want the whole city. I want you to leave thinking like that. I started the office one morning. I was coming down the Stone Mountain Freeway. It crosses the 285 Expressway out here. Without any thought, I hooked up on 285 Expressway and started circling the city of Atlanta and found myself praying for everything inside that circle. Some folk will think I'm crazy. They'll say, that fellow's lost his marbles. He'll never do that. Well, let me say something. You jot it down and never forget it. You will never do any more than you dream. You may do less than you dream, but you will never do any more than you dream. You've got to see it big. You've got to think big. A little fellow stood by the side of the road shooting a BB gun. The fellow came by and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm shooting at the moon. He said, you nut, you'll never hit the moon with that air rifle. He said, I may not, but I'm getting closer to it than you are. And there's truth in that. See it big. Aim high, it costs no more to shoot at eagles than it does at skunks. Aim high. See it big. Multitudes, multitudes, but not only is there the thought of multitudes in this particular parabolic illustration, there is also the thought of accessibility. I mean by that that they are accessible. They can be reached. When you think of a ripened field of grain... You don't think of muscadines growing up in a, or scuppernins growing up in a tree on a vine. You have to climb a tree to get them. When you think of a ripened field of grain, there's nothing to keep you from getting it. It's there. It's almost saying, come get me, come get me, come get me. You can ride down the road next to a ripened field of grain, reach out the winter and get hands full. And I am finding that people are accessible. You can win people to Jesus Christ. The problem is not with the harvest. The problem was with the laborers. We said it's the last days, and you can't do it like they used to do it. We said this is the days of the gleanings, but Jesus said the world is like a ripe and harvest field waiting for one thing, waiting for workers, laborers, somebody who will sweat, somebody who will get up early, somebody who will stay up late, somebody who will do more than what is expected of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul said, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You get your strong concordance, look up the word abounding in the Greek dictionary in the back. The word abounding means doing more than enough. Always doing more than enough in the work of the Lord. The man who succeeds is the man who does more than is necessary and keeps on doing it. Don't ever forget that. There's the idea of accessibility. You can win them. There's not a one of us here who could not win somebody to Christ tonight before we went to bed if we were dead serious about it. They're all around you. 
my secretary, Mrs. Hoffman, a little black-headed lady, had an accident on the way to the office one morning several years back. She was thrown into the windshield of the car and had just a slight concussion. The ambulance came to take her to the hospital. And all the way to the hospital, Mrs. Hoffman asked the attendant in the back of the ambulance, Sir, if you died today, do you know you'd go to heaven? And before they got to the emergency clinic at DeKalb General Hospital, she had won that attendant, Jesus Christ. We installed a televangelism unit here. We put in three telephone lines. January the 1st, and turn the machines on, our bus people started on a Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock giving out the good news cards. In three months' time, 52,000 people called and heard a presentation of the gospel. And 7,000 called back to be dealt with on the phone who trusted Jesus Christ personally as Savior. And thousands of others called for the assurance of salvation to be dealt with about other problems. If we're going to ever evangelize the world, we're going to have to see the world represents multitudes and the world is accessible and we've got to start using everything we can to go after Not only the idea of multitudes and the idea of accessibility, but in this parabolic illustration, there's also the idea of value. Jesus did not liken the souls of unsaved men to pebbles by a brook or uh, grains of sand on a seashore. He likened them unto wheat, which is valuable. Bread, the staff of life. Men had to have that. Oh, I wish somehow that God would give me the vocabulary and the power to preach now for 30 minutes on the importance and the value of one single soul. Mark eight thirty six and 37, Jesus said, Well, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I heard the old country preacher preach that, and you know what I thought of? I thought the soul was worth the material universe. I thought about all the money in the banks and all the automobiles and all the real estates and all the mansions and all the houses. But if you want a good definition of what the world is from the Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, and you'll find it. The apostle John said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. The world consists of three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is a consuming desire to do. The flesh wants to do something. Maybe it has some habit it had before it was saved, and it wants to satisfy the old flesh again. Now just imagine, and try to follow me, that from the moment you were born until the night, that every time your flesh ever had any desire at all that you were able to fulfill that desire. That's unheard of. I mean, as a young boy, teenager, adult, even since you've been married, every desire of your flesh, immediately you said yes to the flesh. And imagine I could guarantee you that if you live to be a thousand years old, that every time your flesh had any desires whatsoever, you could fulfill them. Then you would have gained one-third of the world by fulfilling the lust, the desires of the flesh. That's not all, friend. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye, and the word lust means a strong desire, the desires of the eye. I call that a compelling urge 
to have. The eye sees something and wants it. I see a fellow's new Cadillac. Oh, I want one. I walk down the mall at the shopping center and I see a new suit and I say, oh, I want that. When I was a little boy in July, we used to start thumbing through the Sears Roebuck catalog, picking out what we wanted for Christmas. I changed my mind 40 times before Christmas came and never got anything I wanted. And I gave up my belief in that fellow in the red suit a long time ago. But I'd thumb through the catalog. I want this. I want that. Remember? I remember when I was a teenager, I saw a 40 Ford light gray convertible. I just had gotten my driver's license. I prayed for that Ford. I said, oh, God, if you'll give me that 40 Ford convertible. Every Sunday morning, I'll park it in the church parking lot. Every Sunday night, I'll park it in the church parking lot, and I'll go in the church. And I'll go every Wednesday night. Lord, I'll be the best Christian if I can just have that 44 convertible. Boy, I wanted it. That's the desires of the eye. Imagine that from the time you were born up until now, that every time your eye ever saw anything and wanted it, you had it. That's unheard of, isn't it? But imagine, too, that from this minute on, if you lived to be 100 years old, everything your eye ever saw and wanted, you could have it. You would have gained the second third of the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And the pride of life is a constant thrust to be. I want to be somebody. You know, when you played football on the high school team, you wanted to be the captain. You wanted to be the best guard on the basketball team. You wanted to be a cowboy and play a guitar like Gene Autry. You wanted to be this, and you wanted to start lifting weights, and you could see that you was going to be Mr. America. A constant thrust to be. Now listen. Jesus said that one soul, not, not two, not three, not four, one. One soul is worth more than all this world. That is, one soul is worth fulfilling every desire your flesh ever had. Having everything you ever, I ever saw and ever wanted and realizing every ambition of life, one soul is worth more than all that put together. And that's what the Bible says. That's not what I said. Value of a soul. Listen, man, we run buses here. There's a controversy about the bus ministry, and I'm not here to discuss it. But I'm going to tell you one thing. Every little old barefooted, toe-headed kid that gets saved here, up in heaven, they shout all over heaven when he gets saved. So where'd you get that? Got that out of the Bible. Luke 15, 7 said, There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 just persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, There's more rejoicing in heaven in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents than 99 who need no repentance. One little kid comes down here and some Christian worker takes the Bible and shows him the clear presentation of the gospel and that kid trusts Christ as Savior. Up in heaven, D.L. Moody gets Ira Sankey. Ira Sankey gets Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday gets A.J. Gordon. And A.J. Gordon gets John Wesley. And John Wesley gets George Whitfield. And they jump up and down in heaven and say, Woo! And call a hallelujah and run up and down the streets of gold. Got that out of the Bible. Heaven doesn't rejoice when you have big offerings. Heaven doesn't rejoice when you have carpeted floors and padded pews and, and a fine choir. 
heaven doesn't rejoice at a paved parking lot. Heaven only rejoices when sinners get saved. That's it, sir. The value of a soul. If I could drive it home to you. Don't mark them off. Don't say, that fellow can't give any money to the church. Don't mark them off. You get souls saved, and God knows where the fellow is who can give money to the church. And he'll see that you get some fellows like that. But if your motives are wrong, you won't get any fellows like that. i got to hurry because this is my first point of this sermon. And it's getting as pointed as a porcupine. I'll give you one more thought on this business of a ripened field of grain, and that's the thought of urgency. Urgency. Somebody found a field, and somebody dug the stumps out of that field, and somebody moved the boulders out of that field. Somebody plowed that field. And somebody laid it off. And somebody went out there and worked hard in the sun and showed the grain in the field. And somebody cultivated it. And God sent the showers. And now she's growing. And, and now she's ripe and she's ready for somebody to get it. The greatest tragedy I know is a ripened harvest a ripened field of grain that's unharvested. Look at the waste. Not only if you let a boy die and go to hell, not only does he go to hell to stay there forever and ever, but forever and ever he's out of the will of God and out of the purpose of God because God created men to fellowship with himself. And he can never bring the glory due to his creator until he's born again and back in right relationship with God. Listen, man, if there was no heaven, if there was no hell and men died like dogs, I'd preach this as hard as I'm preaching now. I still want people to get saved. Why? Because when a person trusts Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into his heart to take up permanent residence. And then the Holy Spirit becomes a policeman in that person's life. When he goes to, when he goes to take dope, the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 no. If there's no heaven and hell, I'd want to win these boys and girls to Christ that ride these buses to keep them becoming dope addicts and drunkards, and harlots, and bums. I'd want to win them to Christ because I love America and want to have good citizens. If they died and, and went back to dust and that was in, I'd still preach on winning souls to Christ. Urgency. They won't wait. They won't wait. Write this statement down, don't forget it. This generation of saints are going to answer to God for this generation of sinners. I can't answer to God for the sinners who lived before I was born, and I can't answer to God for the sinners who will live after I'm dead, but you mark this down, friend, you're going to answer to God for the sinners who are alive today. I thank God what's happening in America. There's a movement on in America. Fundamental churches are being built, and folks are standing for God, and souls are being saved, and I'm excited everywhere I go. We have just about reached a point where we have created a climate for revival in America. I think if it keeps going that we're going to see something sure enough happen in the next few years. If we can just get enough people on the bandwagon who will stand for something, win souls, preach the word of God, I think we're going to see something big someday. Urgency. Go get them. They won't wait. Go get them. I move on quickly now to the second parabolic illustration, verse 16. Behold, I send you forth 
as sheep in the midst of wolves. And with this illustration, our Lord illustrates to us the task that lay immediately ahead of his disciples. What's he saying? He's saying it won't be easy. If you're in the ministry because you're looking for an easy job, you're in the wrong business. You know, when I was called to preach, I was so happy, I cried all day long. I mean, I cried. I was grown married, too, and had one child. I cried all day long. And I thought everybody loved the preacher. I could just visualize folks shaking hands with me, leaving a $10 bill in my hand. I could visualize them pat me on the back and say, God bless you, preaching, invite me out for T-bone steaks and buy me new suits, new shoes. Well, I, I just thought the preacher, everybody loved the preacher. Was I ever disappointed? When I was going to be on that little white frame building on Alcove Drive, we'll go back and see it this week. I'd like to have a prayer meeting over there with you this week. When I was on a white frame building when I first started, nobody ever got saved. Nobody cussed me. And if you don't want to be cussed, do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing, and nobody will cuss you. But you start doing something, and they'll try to explain it away. Well, I don't know. They had 2,000 over there, but... I know he said they had 85 saved every Sunday, but I wonder how many of them are really saved. We don't know God. Maybe you could help us. I wonder how many of yours are really saved. If I had 85 walk the aisle of a Sunday and profess Jesus Christ is saved, and I don't get but 10%, true conversions, I got eight and a half. If you have four walk the aisle every Sunday and get saved and you get 90%, I still got more than you have. But the truth of the matter is, I think my percentage is as large as yours and you can't prove it any different. Uh, you say, we're more fair with our converts. How fair do you think we are? You hang around this week, you'll find out how thorough we are. Boy, we don't just sign them up and dip them in and turn them loose. They're dealt with. They're dealt with thoroughly, thoroughly. And one by one, we don't deal with them in groups if we can help it. One-on-one, -on -one, they're taught to be dealt with around here. Listen, man, it hasn't been easy. Jesus said, I'm sending you forth like sheep in the midst of wolves, all right? There's the world. It's like a ripe and harvest field. It's ready now for somebody to go out and reap it. And he said, when you go, it won't be easy. They'll tell you you've lost your marbles. Same thing they told me. Well, now, you're just young. At least they told, at least they told the truth about that. You're just young, and you'll get over it. Well, hallelujah, I hadn't got over it yet. <clears throat> Wolves cuss you, spit at you. I've had people call my wife, say ugly things on the phone. My wife cries. I said, what's wrong? I said, she'd hang up nervous, hang the phone up. People cuss you, don't like you. Come out and write newspaper articles about you, and of all the good things they could say, instead of saying the good things, they say the bad things. You have to get used to that kind of thing. That's the way Jesus says it's going to be. I'm sending you out, it's going to be like sheep in the midst of wolves. A man wrote David Livingston and said, Mr. Livingston, is there an easy way to get to where you are? And David Livingston wrote back and said, we don't want a man to join us who's looking for an easy way. 
We want a man who will make his own way if he has to. You know what? We need some preachers with a backbone like a saw log. Uncle Buddy Robinson, who left the Methodist church and died a tongue-tied, second-blessing Nazarene preacher. And I don't agree with Uncle Bud Robinson's theology, but I sure agreed with what he had. Uncle Bud preached on the second blessing. He said, God had the second blessing, and he, boy, he almost proved it. He talked tongue-tied, and he said, I had the second blessing. One day a fellow went to him and said, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, you talk about second blessing this, second blessing that, second blessing. Uncle Bud, I've had a hundred blessings, and, and 150 blessings, and 200 blessings. You talk about second blessing, second blessing. Uncle Bud said, if you had that many, that you wouldn't mind if I had two, would you? <laughs> I don't agree with his theology. But I sure agree with what he had. Uncle Bud prayed one day. He said, Dear Lord, he said, Give me ribs like the sleepers in the church. And give me a backbone like a saw log and hang a wagon load of determination in the gable end of my soul and fill me with the Holy Ghost and power. Sanctify me and give me the second blessing. You know what we need? We need a back like a saw log too. If you, if you can, if, if you can be made to quit, you'll probably quit. A test of a man's character is what it takes to stop him. I know I've had the blues on Monday morning. I used to resign every Monday morning. My wife said, I used to go in every Monday and say, honey, I'm, I'm going I'm to give up to church. She'd say, go ahead. And I said, yes, with that, I'm not going to give it up. <laughs> I'm going to stay and show you I can do it. You'll get the blues. It's going to be sheep in the midst of wood. Don't, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. It won't be easy. And it won't get easier the further you go in the bigger church. You get it'll get harder and harder and harder and harder. But the rewards are worth the persecution. Next. He said, Be as wise as serpents, verse 16, and as harmless as doves. And with this illustration, he illustrates the wisdom to be exercised by the serpents. You know, preachers, we ought to be wise. We shouldn't be idiots and, and ignoramuses. We ought to use wisdom. We ought to use wisdom in winning people to Christ. We ought to make sure that we present to them the plan of salvation clearly and, and be tactful in our approach. The way to a man's heart is not down his throat. I'm going to tell you something. I don't know how to set with you. But if I went to a man's house and he was drinking a can of beer, I wouldn't even mention it. Because he's as lost as a goose. He is dead. To tell him to quit drinking beer is like going to the funeral parlor and a dead man's laying out there in the casket and his tie's crooked and you say, straighten your tie up. He just keeps laying there with his tie crooked. He can't do a thing till he gets life. And you don't talk to a man about how to live until he gets the liver. And when Jesus comes into his heart, then you can talk about how to live. But first, show him he's a sinner. Show him Christ died for him. Show him how to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, how to trust Christ. And then the Holy Spirit is given to him at birth, Galatians 4, 6, and now he can live it. You never win him that way. Be tactful, be as wise as serpents, and as harmless as doves. And may I add, you are only harmless as doves as you are wise as serpents. It goes together. 
heard. Now come to verse 29, the fourth parabolic illustration. Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? Now I want you to read that verse, and don't you read it like it's not written, and don't you read into it something that's not in there. Read it again. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground? And it doesn't say without the knowledge of your father. That's the way you've been quoting it. It says, one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. God is omniscient. And if you said he fell, didn't fall without the knowledge of the father, you're right. But that's not what the Bible said. It's one thing to know about a sparrow falling on the ground. It's another thing to be out there with him when he falls on the ground. It's the latter thought here. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without the father. And in this illustration, our Lord illustrates the father's tender care for his servants. Nothing no one can do can keep God from loving me and caring for me. You know something? God loves preachers. He says to the preacher, there's a ripe and harvest field. It won't be easy. You're going like sheep in the midst of wolves and they'll growl at you. It won't be easy. But you be wise. And if you die there, I'll be there with you when you die. If you head out some late, late some night to the hospital to visit some dying patient in the hospital and lead her to Jesus Christ, and three o'clock in the morning you run head onto a trailer truck and you die on the highway, I'll be standing next to the front wheel when you draw your last breath. If everybody in town crushes you and your own kin folks misunderstand you and the world turns their back on you, it gets difficult. You have to die a martyr's death. When they throw the last stone, I'll stand up for you like I did for Stephen and say, come on in. Listen, buddy, when John Wesley died, John Wesley died and his dying breath was best of all. God is with us. What I'm telling you is real me. I wouldn't trade the conscience, awareness of the presence of Christ in my life for 10 billion worlds like this. There's something about when you get in that car by yourself and you start out and you start talking to God as if he's sitting next to you. And you feel him there and you know he's there. The reality of his presence and service, even if it leads to the point of dying, Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father. And little birds, when they die, they'll fly way back out in the forest. Way out to get alone and settle a little limb and they'll shake and they'll quiver. And they'll die and they'll fall off the limb. And God Almighty cups his hands and breaks the sparrow's fall and, and lays him down. That's it. Let him cuss. Let them throw the rocks. All right? It may get to the place where I have to die a martyr's death, and I'll face a martyr's death. And I'll claim this promise that I'm much more than a sparrow. He loves you, preacher. God loves you. Nobody else may not love you, and a lot of times you feel like nobody else don't love you, don't you? 
But God loves you. And He knows where you are serving. And He knows how dedicated you are. And He knows how much your heart bleeds. And when you die, He'll be there with you. And then I close this final illustration. I must stop somewhere here. Verse 34, Think that not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. And with this illustration, our Lord illustrates the result of the servant's work. It's divisive. I lead a man to Jesus Christ and he becomes a spiritual schizophrenic. He becomes two people. When Paul talked about his old man, he wasn't talking about his daddy. He's talking about a part of himself. <laughs> you become two. Paul said, what I would do, I can't do. And he finally said, I find in my, my flesh a war, something going on, warring. And Galatians 5, 17 said, the spirit lusteth against the flesh, and the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and these two are contrary one to the other. When you lead a man to Christ, you divide that man. He becomes a new and old man. And when you lead a man to Christ and don't lead his wife to Christ, you divide a home. In a spiritual sense, because one then is under the control of one power, one's under the control of another power. When you lead men to Christ in a big church or a small church, where some are not saved and some are saved, you're dividing professing Christendom. I don't have time to get into it, but professing Christendom is divided. I'm a fundamentalist with a big F. I make no apologies. I'll probably talk with you about it for the week's over. And I might add this, you can take every method you want to, and you can put every method we use here, and every method Dr. Howe's using, every method everybody else using in the country. You can practice it, but it won't produce the results that others get unless you're in line with biblical principles. God can't bless a man who's not fundamental in his faith and still be God. You've got to stick with the Word. And this is a result of the work. Aren't you glad you're a preacher? I am. You know, I feel like just standing and joining hands and running up and down the aisles and shouting, nobody's here but us. I feel like just, we'll just have a big time just celebrate because we're preachers and just holler and scream all night. Just say, Whoa, we're preachers! God called us to preach! I'd have to step down to be the president. I wouldn't change place of it, especially now. <laughs> wonderful sending your servants out he's saying I want you to see it like I see it I want you to feel to water them like I feel to water them and I want you to do about them what I've done about them thank you for listening to the classic sermons podcast from preachthebible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara California to listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust. <laughs>